Thank you, Bruce. Let me pray. Loving God, as we seek to hear your word, to recognize the greater truths that are beyond our understanding, yet to value all that you have revealed to us of your person, your love for this world, your purposes, and all that it means to be drawn into a relationship with you through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as Rick said at the start of our service, that today is Trinity Sunday, and it's the last of what's called a Red Letter Sunday. So there's a number of major festivals that we have through the church year, Advent, Christmas, leading up to uh, uh, Palm Sunday, Easter, we have marked Ascension, Pentecost, and now we draw all those together in Trinity Sunday. And days gone by, Trinity Sunday would be marked by the uh, reading of the Athanasian Creed, one of the three creeds that we affirm in the Ang- Anglican Church. It's a very long creed, uh, and it, conf- it includes lines about not being confused which is a very confusing creed as such. But I do commend it to you. If you want to know more about the, uh, the theological nuances of what, how the church has discerned the Trinity, you can look at the Athanasian Creed. It's in the back of our prayer book, or you can Google it. The theme I want to draw on today can be summarised in the one line that you have as the title there. Our understanding of the Trinity is a profound expression probably the ultimate expression of unity and community. Our God is a community of three that exists as one being. Language struggles to find sufficient ways to express it. And I want to just touch on a few characteristics of it very briefly before drawing in some wider threads. The past week we've seen Pentecost Sunday where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit upon all of God's people and recognise that the Spirit is a spirit of mission, a spirit that uh, drives as the agent of mission that goes before us in mission. So we reflected last week. Today we look at Trinity Sunday and in between we've also had a significant week in the life of our nation, Reconciliation Week. And I want to draw those three threads together. At least I want to try and view the, the need and the responsibility and the opportunity for reconciliation as very much pleasing to God as a part of God's mission in the lens of both Pentecost and Trinity. So just if I, if I seem to have lost my way, just grab one of those threads and hope that we're going to weave those three threads together. Pentecost, Trinity and the importance of reconciliation. The general shape of the Trinity is expressed, especially in the the Western Church, uh, through a symbol something like this, that there are the one God, represented by that central being, is revealed, is perceived in the way in which God has engaged with the world as the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the main shape of it is to say that the the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, who is not the Father, 
Each is quite distinctive, though they mutually do dwell within each other, but each of them is God, fully God, not just a, a momentary God in that space. That's the sort of the general shape of it. Once you begin to go down into what does that inner life of the Trinity look like, both we recognise our, our struggles to comprehend something that is much bigger than anything we've experienced, but we also know that we are treading into holy space, quite literally. It is something that is other than anything else we can point to and say, look, we've got a, a working model of the Trinity exactly here. It doesn't work like that. The call for reconciliation is an ongoing one and one in which we talk about with a degree of wariness in the life of the church. And I want us to address a little bit around how I propose that we can address what are profound themes in what we know is a highly politicised context and a whole range of views. The need for reconciliation is well established. We recognise that the disparity, the gap between the First Nation people in our wider society and through a whole range of measures and the wider population is shameful. It is alarming. That's not anything new. The challenge is how to do something about that. But there is a key relationship behind that that I want to name just initially, then I'll come back to it a little bit later. Um, but the key relationship is the unique status of First Nation and First Culture people in this land. That is why that it's, the proposal is to name the historic fact that First Nation people and the variety of cultures that is reflected in that have been here not just for centuries, but for thousands and tens of thousands of years. And that is not insignificant. It wasn't always recognised by early um, settlers, and the notion, as I put on the welcome sheet of Terranullius, that no one has a claim to this land, it was a null and void one, was overturned by the High Court in the Mabo decision to say that was an incorrect notion. My understanding is that of all other colonies, there actually has been a treaty of some description to clarify what that relationship needs to look like. Certainly the case in uh, New Zealand and Canada and other places. And this remains work to be done within Australia. Now let me just step back for a minute and I'll I will revisit it again in a few moments, but after I've uh, focused on the significance of the Trinity in that space. But first of all, just want to clarify a few things around how we can uh, explore such issues as a church, important issues, whilst trying to avoid, the best we're able to, the politicisation of those types of issues. So let me just take a step back and rehearse a conversation that I have with our uh, clergy in formation, our ordinands, and which I as a bishop on occasion go around and remind some of our clergy of as well. That is the principle in the Anglican Church of Australia at least, 
that those who speak from the pulpit in the public worship of the Anglican Church of Australia and its various different parishes represent the church in that space. So hopefully I'd do my best and likewise with the Archbishop and our expectation for all other clergy never to use the pulpit as a personal platform to push political views or their own particular agendas in that space. Where the Anglican Church of Australia has made a statement, has come to some agreement, either through General Synod or whether it's a pastoral statement from the bishops or from some of our nationally sanctioned groups like NATSIAC, the National uh, Aboriginal Anglican Council, Anglican Torres Strait Anglican Council, um, where they represent the people through a whole process of uh, um, being drawn into an entity of the church, we pass on those statements as well. So when we address significant issues, we need to navigate that space of, this is not Tim advocating a view, but representing respectfully um, a view that is consistent with our marks of mission in the Anglican Church and statements or views and discussions within the Anglican Church of Australia. So I view that responsibility highly. And as I say, as Bishop, on occasion, we do go around and to remind some people that this is not their own personal platform to push all manner of views. There are other spaces to do it. However, that's me to say we can't talk about the broader principles. So the question around the forthcoming referendum um, started in a much wider sense, the statement from the heart, the Uluru Statement. And if you haven't read it, I do encourage you to do so. And I've heard some of those who uh, were um, signatories to it expressing it as an invitation to the wider community. That is not a party political issue. Sadly, in my view, the uh, referendum questions have become party political to a certain degree, but they're not owned by the parties. They may have a view on it. But this is a national conversation that we seek to have. And... uh, My hope is to address the broader principles without entering into party political positions. However, there's also space for us to have respectful conversations. So it's my hope uh, in coming months to uh, to create some opportunities on uh, times of convenience for people, probably a couple of hours, to have conversations around a number of issues, one of which will be around the referendum and the voice. Um, I've named those Bishop Tim's culture-making conversations. Um, Bishop Tim's, I'm naming it in terms of this is something I'll take responsibility for and for how it's conducted. And the, the general approach in those conversations is to try and explore possibilities for a better way. There is no shortage of opinion out in our wider community on these issues. Um, the range of those who the, uh, provide commentary and all manner of things, that is all there, and it's not my desire to replicate that or even provide avenues to try and do import that whole range of views and opinions that are expressed. My particular desire is to give uh, opportunity to hear and ideally hear firsthand, face-to-face, from our fellow Anglicans and especially from our 
Indigenous, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Anglicans who have perspectives and views on it. As it happens, in about 10 days' time, um, I've been asked to lead the, uh, the sessions, all the sessions, nine of the sessions, at the North Queensland Clergy Conference in Cairns. And a number of the Torres Strait Islander and uh, far North Queensland Aboriginal clergy will be there. And I'll be listening in that space. I want to hear what their views and their reflections are and hopefully I'll be able to bring something of that back with me. So just in terms of this culture-making conversations, the language is intentional. We can be involved in culture wars, and it often can be very much taking shots at the opposition, at the others, and it can have a very uh, denigrating culture, if not simply abusive culture. The exchange of abuse in social media is a significant problem that we across the Western world are experiencing. Things are said in such harsh and uh, hurtful ways because you can do it behind a keyboard and a degree of anonymity rather than face-to-face in the context of relationships. I do not want to have that culture brought into these conversations. So these are some of the ground rules that I'm suggesting for respectful discussions. This is a work in progress. Feel free to give me your opinions. Um, what I'm like in the conversation is that they'll be shaped around arguing for a way forward, shaped around proposals rather than denigration, seeking to clarify common ground in terms of outcomes sought. We want to address those gaps. We want to seek greater reconciliation in this case. Addressing issues rather than targeting people, avoidance of assertions of motive, a better understanding of alternative perspectives, to say, I don't understand that. Can you explain it more? Can you clarify what, the, what that, your, your thoughts are on this? And a willingness to learn from those from whom, with whom we may differ. Is that something of that space I want to try and create so we can have genuine conversations that has a desire to, to have a greater understanding and a willingness to listen? So what's by way of a background of what I'm going to touch on today, which is not the theme of the voice, which is our question as to how the, that might work and so on. That's a conversation not from the pulpit, in my view, but from a broader sense. But the principle of hearing and ensuring that we hear the voice of a minority group of the First Nations people is significant. However, the general principle of our relationship with them is, I believe, something that is closely tied to our understanding of the gospel, the work of Jesus, and the, uh, the mission that God enables. The Trinity has been reflected in those two brief readings, and there's no passage in the Bible that says this is the Trinity, but the nature of the Trinity understood as, as uh, these terms is reflected in a number of places. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all is a way in which we could summarise as an expression of the free freeness in one of God, the free in one God. And similarly, the Matthew 28 commission, we have the one name, not names, plural, but in the one name, the one being known as the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so that is the distinctive 
or one of the distinctive features of our Christian faith. So where does it take us when it comes to understanding how we, we recognise the working of this triune God in the world as we experience it and the spaces we have? Just a couple of thoughts about the uh, significance of honouring and naming the uh, First Nation culture and presence in this land. First of all, uh, it is, I believe, entirely biblical to affirm that the Holy Spirit did not arrive with the First Fleet or with European settlement. The Holy Spirit has been at work in this land since time immemorial, from the beginnings of creation. In fact, the Bible affirms that the whole earth is full of the, the working and the glory of God, including the working of the Holy Spirit. Our biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit reaches out, as I mentioned last week, for a number of metaphors to try and understand this working of God, the breath, the wind, the animating force, even the refining fire, the number of images that are used. And we are also enriched by other images or metaphors that other cultures can provide to understand this great presence of a divine being, a, a, a being that is one in which we must respect and for, for whom we go about life of a sense of responsibility, of stewardship. In my belief, some of the uh, um, dreamtime narratives of the creator spirit help us to understand something of that and we can find some common ground in discovering that. When I was speaking with some Māori about their understanding of how they bring some of their own understanding of the world, the cosmos, through their Māori traditions, and that's a lot newer than Aboriginal culture. Māori say, oh, we're only centuries old, four, you know, seven or eight centuries old. But they said... We believe that there is a divine spirit behind this world in which we inhabit that we need to respect, we need to honour. When you Europeans arrived, you brought us an understanding of Jesus, the light that we had discerned as the light within the darkness, now has a face, has a story we can understand with greater clarity. And I still remember the, uh, the, the Māori elder saying to me, and coming to know Christ has made us better Māori. We're still Māori. He actually went on to say, we stopped eating each other. But <laughs> in terms of some of the, the tribalism and the violence, he said, no, the, the Māori Christian now, we have nothing to do with that. We are better Māori for coming to know Jesus. But we recognise that the spirit has been around us since time immemorial. So it's helpful for me to reflect on that, that the... Uh, Aboriginal people, the Torres Strait Islanders, the first uh, nations in our culture, are no less in the image and likeness of God and reflect those attributes of God in their own way, in their own culture. And it's helpful for us to explore and to understand more about what that means by way of their perception of a greater being. So we have that sense in which we can bring it together. There's also a sense in which the the Western tradition of, of defining the Trinity is um, absolutely um, to be affirmed. The Athanasian Creed is a profound statement to try and work through what is and isn't to be affirmed around the Trinity. 
But it's not the only statement. The Eastern Orthodox tradition, the Greek tradition, is talk about the Trinity as energy, So I'll touch on it in a minute. I love this quote from Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers, the, uh, the novelist who wrote all the, uh, the Lord Peter Whimsey detective novels and others, is a, a great apologist, a firm believer in the Christian faith. She wrote, In art, the Trinity is expressed in the creative idea, the creative energy, and the creative power. The first, the creative idea, imagining the work, then the making incarnate of the work, being the creative energy, and the third, the meaning of the work, the creative power. Just different ways to, to recognise that God is working in and through as one, through what we have come to understand through the Trinity. In the, as I say, in the Eastern tradition, they talk more about uh, the divine essence and divine energies flicking and, and, uh, and animating as they interplay in engaging with the world. And it's, again, a, a rich um, area to explore further around how the Eastern Orthodox tradition understand the Trinity. ...of recognising that the work of reconciliation is something that is at the heart of God. God is a gathering God. And even when God called up a nation or a nation to be through the family of Abram and uh, called them out to become the, the instruments, the gathering point, the purpose was that all nations would be blessed through this work of redemption that God would do through Abraham. The light to the nations is affirmed by the prophets, Isaiah in particular. Pentecost that we celebrated last week was the breaking out the agent of the Spirit, the agency of the Spirit that is now bringing an understanding of the gospel into a whole range of other languages together with the commission to go and to be disciples, make disciples, to spread out from to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth is that the missional drive, God's passion is for the whole world. So when we work with what does it mean to have uh, significant pain in relationships, it means there's work to be done. Reconciliation isn't just a wand or a statement that we make. It is to sit and to listen. And it is shocking the degree to which that gap and the impact of it is brushed aside so much. Colonisation has made an enormous imprint on the culture of the Indigenous people. Problems are certainly profound and there's no easy solution. My understanding is that few, if anyone, is arguing against the recognition of First Nation people as being here before European settlement within our own constitution. I haven't heard political parties saying they're against that particular issue. The question around the voice and the importance of the principle and how it can be achieved is another question for another time. So I'm hoping that we can both seek to have a better understanding of First Nation culture in our own area. 
I mentioned at our 175th that this particular part of Adelaide had a particular quality to it that was named by the name that was given to it. But there's a whole area of, of sitting down and hearing, as I've heard from Bishop Chris, of his mother and his grandmother who were both removed from their families in the stolen generations, of people like Bishop Chris and Cameron Burr, who's one of our, our young clergy recently ordained, discovering that he actually had Aboriginal family he had never been told about and discovering and beginning to meet more of them and hearing of their journeys. I know the whole question around Stan Grant and the notorious um, occasion when he was asked as a guest to give his views before the coronation. He wasn't hosting it. He was actually asked to, to come as a contributor to a panel. But the pain that he has experienced is shocking. And the pile-on for him for daring to speak about his angst that, you know, when he, he grew up knowing that if a van came along the street with a crown on it, that it shed horror to the children who would then run to hide from the van with a crown on it. And he says, yes, that does touch raw nerves in our memory. There's listening for us to do in that space as a community. And my hope is that we can have a respectful way as a church community to do more of that listening and to have respectful conversations and to ask questions constructively in that space. Because one thing I'm certain of is that we as a culture, we as a community and as a people talking about the broader community, can do and must do a lot better than we're doing at present. It's in that spirit that I'm going to offer you a prayer of recognition.